0: Welcome to episode 205 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Virginia Cruz. I heard part of Virginia's story in an interview on the Military Veteran Dad with Ben Colloy, and I really thought that interview was powerful. And when I happened to connect with Virginia, I really wanted to get this interview in because that story was so powerful. I really think the interview on Military Veteran Dad is really a great resource if you're struggling with... PTSD or thoughts of suicide because they really go deep and talk about the challenges and how easy it is to find yourself in a place contemplating suicide but in this week's interview we talked about Virginia's experience of serving in the army what led her to write a soldier's guide to PTSD which is linked to in the show notes and so I'm really excited to share this interview with you so let's get started welcome to the show virginia i'm so excited to have you here thank you amanda back at you lady i have to start i know i said i was going to ask a question but i have to start by mentioning that you were on ben colloy's podcast the military veteran dad just because i heard your interview and i just thought it was so impactful and so i'm gonna link to it in the show notes and that way people can check it out Oh, I love that. I really love, Ben has written a
1: book also uh, that I would want to shamelessly plug. I, I just, I love his platform and I love what he's doing. Very few folks are talking about parenthood and the military and being a spouse, being a parent. And uh, so I love shows like yours, Amanda, like Ben's, where people are, talking about, you know, what is it like to be a parent in the military and how do we maintain that balance? So I I would encourage your listeners, especially those who are already parents and thinking of joining the military to check out
0: Ben Kaloy's podcast. Yeah, it's really good. And he was on the podcast for Father's Day. So I'll have to link to that too. I love it. So now let's start the interview with why did you decide to join the military? Oh, Amanda, I...
1: You know, I joined the military for a myriad of reasons. I was young, I was really going nowhere kind of fast. And and I'm just going to be super truthful here. I didn't have a lot of opportunities uh that were available to me. I was living in South Boston, didn't have money for tuition. I was working Dead end jobs. I was in a relationship that wasn't going great. I mean, you name it, it kind of stunk. And I had a younger brother who had joined the Army National Guard. And I thought to myself, man, you know, maybe if David did this, maybe, maybe I could. And I liked the idea of being a National Guard person because it seemed non committal enough to me. The idea of doing four years and then four years inactive, you know, I was. I was maybe 21, 22 years old, and I was like, eight years is is like almost half my life. I don't know how I feel about that, but but I can certainly commit to a weekend a month, two weeks a year, which is what I was going for at the time. Of course, this is the before the the current war cycle, and I thought, you know, let's just go for this. And I always kind of had this adventurous streak in me. And I thought, you know, the what, what's the worst that could happen? And so I I went and I found a recruiter, and I was like, you know, let's just do this. It was, you know, parts desperation, parts curiosity, parts adventure seeking, and it all really worked out in the end. I would have to say, if I could do it all again, I might do it differently, but I certainly would still join, and I'm glad that I did.
0: I like that uncertainty part because when I did ROTC, they were like, You can try it out and you don't have to do it. And I was like, This is great because I'm not sure if I should do this military thing. You know, I w- I mean, and I was an older
1: enlistee, you know, geriatric enlistees at age like 22, 23, um, <laughs> you know, instead of 17, 18. So the idea of doing eight years, I was like, i You know, and here I am, you know, staring down the barrel of 50, and I'm like, ah, four years, meh. But at the time, it was just, uh, it was the bridge too far, but National Guard is what got me there.
0: So when you went to the recruiter and you started filling out the paperwork to join the National Guard, how quickly did you head off to basic training? And did you start drilling before you went to training?
1: I did. I drilled. So this is back in 97. So I don't do math in public, but that's a minute ago. And I joined my National Guard group uh, in Massachusetts, started drilling. And my impression was like, you know, it was a... It was like a costume party, you know, everyone was dressed up in, it's, you know, dressed up, face paint, singing songs, marching. I was like, I could do this for 20 years. This is awesome. And it took me a full year, actually, to get my active duty slot or rather my my active training slot. So I did well on the ASVAB, thankfully. And I got uh, a gig as an interrogator. So back then it was a 97 Echo. And I don't know what it is these days. 69, haha, whatever it is now. But, and I went to language school. So back then uh, we went to the Defense Language Institute. So the Presidio of Monterey. Oh my gosh. I mean, just saying that gives me chills. It was so, it was a dream. It was a dream. It was a dream. Went to Monterey for two years to learn Arabic. And I did really well in the course. It was like being paid to go to school full time and work out and eat great food. I didn't really cook on my own. So for me, chow hall food was it. I, I just loved it. And then afterwards, I went to Fort Huachuca for the interrogator course. Then I went back and uh, and started drilling and um, just, I was a drilling reservist, and then I was like, okay, I'm kind of, you know, went back to school, and I was done drilling, and then I got a call at my <laughs> at my cell phone. I, actually, I think it was a home phone back then. I don't even think I had a cell phone. Gosh, your poor, your listeners are going to think I'm as ancient as I am. That hurts my feelings, Amanda, but um, I got a call, and the the number that came up on uh, the caller ID back then said, um, you know, restricted government number, and it was on Valentine's Day weekend, 2003, and they were like specialist crews, and I laughed, I laughed, I was like, ha, no, and uh, they, said, you know, and this very official sounding person, it, it sounded fake to me, said, you know, we just called to let you know that you're gonna be deployed and yadda yadda, and I and I hung up because I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke. My husband was still active duty at the time. So I thought he was playing a trick on me because when after 9-11, I I was living in San Antonio, Texas, best city in the planet, goes first. And after 9-11, I had volunteered. uh, They they put out a a big call for uh, translators. And I was translating actually with the local school district at the time. And I was thrilled. And I went over and I said, you know, Hi, I'm an Arabic speaker and I'm here to help. And if you look at me, and I know that your readers are listening to this, but I don't exactly come off as an Arabic speaker, let alone anyone who, you know, I, you know, I just, I, it is what it is. You know, I'm just this, I'm, I'm white, I'm freckled, I have red hair. I am not screaming, you know, I'm an Arab uh, in terms of my, you know, the way I present. And they laughed me out and gave me a referral to a local me- mental health facility. And um, and I was like, okay, you know, I'll go take my skills and go home. So I started translating with the school district. I was waitressing and going to school and not doing a heck of a lot. So when the call came to deploy, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was fake. And so I hung up, and much to my chagrin, they they called back, and they were like, "Yeah, this this isn't a joke." I later found out, though, Amanda, that a lot of people had hung up thinking that it was a joke because it was ba- it was uh, Valentine's Day weekend, and uh, and it was just so suspect. I was in a reserve unit at that point, so I had transferred from National Guard to the reserve, took off, and and got to use my language skills full tilt.
0: And where did you deploy to?
1: So my first deployment was to Iraq. We started out in Balad, but then we went to a place called Ramadi. And uh, as as a translator and as an interrogator, I was really, I was I was out in the cut. So I uh, I spent a lot of my time with the 1st of the 124th Infantry, which is a Florida National Guard unit. Spent a lot of time translating for 761st EOD, 82nd Airborne. I mean, it, back then... And uh, it's, it sounds almost crazy, but back then, we did not have translators in spades. You know, this way, it was as if the war took us by surprise. It didn't, but uh, in terms of being prepared linguistically. And uh, so I... It was a it was a really great experience. Um, I got to spend a lot of time with small units and really get to be you know with other soldiers, with other service members, and and with the local folk. It was surreal. It was terrifying. It was dangerous, and I'm really thankful in 2020 hindsight. That I didn't recognize how dangerous it truly was at the time because I I think um, I think that would have not been okay. I remember in particular I was uh, I was with the infantry and this was to, we maybe had oh gosh Amanda 30 days left in our deployment like we were winding down and back you know and you might hear you know, some old timers call, say, oh, you know, back then it was a wild, wild west. And it was. Deployments have changed a lot uh, since then. And um, nowhere to go but up. I mean, we were drinking all the time. Or I, I'll speak for myself. I was drinking all the time. I, you know, we were, you know, it was not okay. There was a lot of illegal stuff going on, war crimes, smuggling, you name it. I mean, it was, it was not okay. There was not a lot of adult supervision. And uh, about 30 days out, uh, my unit received ballistic vests. So these are these vests that have these very heavy ceramic plates that are to help you, you know, not get killed when you're shot, which is always a good thing. And they they said to me, Cruz, come over here you know, give me your flak vest and you've got this now. So I was wearing a a flak vest, which, you know, just a very heavy, uncomfortable vest. And I said, what is this? And I said, well, this is your bulletproof vest. And I said, wait a minute. So what's this? And I pointed to what I was wearing. And they're like, that, that's, that's a flak vest. That's, you know, for shrapnel. And, and I said, you, what? Like, I literally, Amanda, thought I was six feet tall and bulletproof the whole time. You know, again, much alcohol uh, involved. But, uh, you know, just terrifying. Terrifying. We up-armored our Humvees with trash can lids. You know, the guys put sandbags uh uh you know, underneath their seats because their their greatest fear was their balls getting blown off, you know, if we hit an IED. And uh, you know, so I guess I guess the, you know, they would end up with really sandy balls. Um, but it, you know, it was it was wild. It was wild how um how terrifying in in twenty twenty hindsight, uh, just how how absolutely terrifying that was.
0: I love hearing stories of women who were deployed in like the early days of the war because so many people don't know the role that women played and like I heard someone who was on a female engagement team once say, We were the first women and I was like, uh, no you weren't because I deployed before you and I was embedded with an infantry unit and you were deployed before me and you were embedded in an infantry unit and so I think sometimes there's a lot of like misnomers on like how it came to that women were eventually allowed to be in combat units, but it started like way back in the beginning with women doing things like translating and other technical skills that the infantry needed, the skill set, and they didn't care if you were a woman or a man, they just needed that skill set and that was how it ended up slowly changing the military.
1: Yeah. Gosh, I'm so, you know, as you're saying that, I'm reflecting a lot on kind of my post-deployment experience, because you're right, there there are a lot of misnomers out there, and, and my time with the infantry, you know, I'm so, I'm so fortunate. I am very incredibly thankful that I spent my time with them. I'm really thankful that I had a skill that was in high demand because it got me out of a out of a lot of situations that could have been very dangerous. For example, the rest of my unit got wrapped up in the whole Abu Ghraib scandal, and I ended up in, in Ramadi because I, I'm a really good linguist. I, I'm incredibly thankful. Uh, you know, but then later on and my my infantry unit they were they were wonderful. I mean really respectful and kind and unbelievably intelligent. Um I'd never met an infantry person before being attached to that unit. And so I thought they were going to be kind of six feet tall, bulletproof sort of o fish. And they were PhDs, very learned, writing poetry. I mean these guys were like right out of like Bridgerton. It was wild and uh, and just incredibly kind. And I, I so deeply respected them and what they did. And, you know, later on, you know, after my third deployment, it was in 2008 and I was not okay. All those deployments just caught up with me and I was Uh, drinking all the time. I was highly suicidal. I was blowing up my perfectly awesome marriage. I was pushing away the people I really cared about and who cared about me. I was having all these anger outbursts and I knew that something was very deeply wrong, but I didn't know what and so finally, I had had uh, an incident, we'll just call that nicely, at work. And I was living and working in Germany at the time for Department of the Army, and I got volunteered to go to behavioral health. So I got sent to a, uh, an Army hospital, and I had the chance to sit down with a, um, a male colonel Um, You know, an an 06 male colonel, active duty type. And I was so thankful because this was I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. But I knew that my life was I was I was sabotaging myself all the time. I was terrified. I I was not okay. And this person in the army is what we call a slick sleeve. So that's kind of a derogatory term that means uh, that they don't have a combat patch. So they wear the patch of their unit on one arm, but they don't have a combat patch on the other. So they had not deployed to a forward unit in a war zone. And so this colonel, I, girl, I poured my heart out. I poured my heart out because I was desperate. I was so sick. And, uh, you know, looking back on it now, it, it it chokes me up because, you know, I, anyway, he listened to me for the better part of 50 minutes and he kind of sighed, and he looked at me and he said, "Virginia, I can tell that you are really struggling, but I can't do anything to help you if you don't choose to be honest with me and I was super confused by that, and I asked for some clarification. he readily gave it. He said, "You know, we all know that women don't serve in combat, and if you can't be honest with me, there is nothing that I can do to help you with what's going on with your psychology and And, well, I was escorted from the building, and uh, that didn't end well. I was diagnosed with a personality disorder and really kicked in the teeth. While I was down, what made it worse is that it was from some a brother in arms. It was somebody who was supposed to have my back, who was actively wearing the uniform, who in one felt swoop diminished my combat experience and my life experience to, uh, you know, someone who eats bonbons and you know just needs a couple of mydol and to just calm down. And it was so dismissive, and it turned a bad situation. I was already not okay. And it went from bad to worse for me. And I was, I was devastated. I was devastated. I didn't know how the, this was going to affect my work, how it was going to affect my security clearance. And I just had a, a very senior military officer tell me that I was just full of crap. And um, you know, back then, we didn't talk a lot about gaslighting or PTSD, for that matter. And I came home and I talked with my husband, and or rather probably yelled at him. I don't know. I was drunk. I was not okay. And I threw myself into a bottle. And I realized at that moment that if I didn't figure this out, Amanda. I was going to die. I literally was going to die. I was either going to die by my own hand. I was going to go crazy. I was going to have to be institutionalized. I didn't know what was happening, but I knew that the outcome would not be okay. And so at that moment, I did the only thing that I could think to do, which was to go back to school. And so I, uh, I went back to school, got my master's degree
0: in professional counseling. And 14 years later, here I am talking with you I told you before we started the interview about how when I got home from my deployment, that counselor told me that I was fine. And I felt the same way that she dismissed everything I had done and looked at me as like a female who had deployed. And she didn't even ask me about my experience because she just assumed that I didn't see anything. And I was just, and I, so that think of like how many women and even men who have like struggled and then they go and try and get help and someone just dismisses them and like tells them you're okay and my situation wasn't suicidal but it definitely did get better it got worse and like I finally got help six years later six years and before I finally got help and now it's like changed my life and I was in such a dark place when I finally went back to get help that I was like getting to the point where I was starting to feel like everything was falling apart and like it just was so sad. So I yeah that just really obsessed me because it it really resonates with like what my experience was and like how when you're in that place and you know there's something wrong and you need help and the fact that he just like openly dismissed it and you're like I'm not lying like <laughs> this is my story but that's The narrative, like women can't be in combat, so it went against everything that he believed. But that's just really sad.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm sorry. I know I've heard your story uh, on your on your podcast, and um, you know, it's something that still bothers me. I, you know, I'm a mental health counselor now. I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I see I've seen, you know, thousands of clients at this point, men, women, and, and what's And what's tough is that, you know, I can look back on that now and I have so much more clarity, but, you know, I'm also a lot older, wiser. Um, It was such an abuse of power. Uh, The power dynamic in the military and especially and within the medical field um, and mental health is really, I don't think we talk a lot about it. You know, how we treat somebody, how I treat somebody when I have the power and they don't have any, is a reflection of who I am and what I value. That's not a reflection of the person to whom I'm speaking. That is a reflection of me. And that is insight that is hard won. You know, their of power is something that I'm very sensitive to because of my time in the military. It's, you know, I study moral injury and I study something called institutional betrayal, which has a lot to do with, uh, you know, abuse of power and abuse of institution and how absolutely devastating that can be for the individual. When I am talking with a service member or a veteran in my office, I I, I sound so middle-aged, but I've got like inspirational quotes that I keep up on my computer to remind me kind of why I do what I do. Because I need reminding. I'm not going to lie to you. I get crabby and cranky, and I can't go from zero to Karen and like 60 flat. You know, it's, I can get there. But one of the quotes I have is, is stop for the one. And um, that's a a quote from Heidi Baker, who um, is a pastor, you know, to stop for the one, that even in, you know, when the world is just going batshit, it is so important to just stop and eyeball the person who is there right now in the here and now and stop and be there for them and how impactful that can be. And another quote, a dear friend of mine told me this quote, you'll never look into the eyes of someone God doesn't love. And You know, in in my line of work, you know, in counseling, sometimes sometimes there's just a lot of resistance. I know when I finally got help for my own PTSD, I had been kicked in the teeth so many times, Amanda, that I was very skeptical that anyone was was going to honestly reach out and help me. I had an expectation that I was going to be kicked again, and so I did everything that I could to protect myself, and that is. That's normal. That's a very normal trauma reaction, but it's hard being on the receiving end of that, or at least it is for me. And so you know I have to remember that you know every person who who comes into my path, I, you know, I don't believe in coincidence, you know, I'm there to stop and to to help and to, and to just to be the hands and feet just to just to be there. And that doesn't mean I'm perfect. In fact, I mean, I screw up every day epically but it, you know what a what a privilege especially to talk with other women who have served and to talk with folks who've been dismissed you know whether it you know women in the military folks who identify as queer uh, folks in in non combat arms MOSs or jobs you know my my experience is mine and i recognize that i still have a lot of privilege you know, I'm white, I am cisgender, the world is a lot harder out there for for women of color, for those who identify as LGBTQIA plus community, those who identify as transgender, the world is harder for them. And so I, you know, I take my experience, but I also recognize that That is a heteronormative world. That it's a white world, and I try to be very—I just try to pass that empathy on. And and that's actually why I wrote—I wrote my book, and that's sort of my platform for the soldier's guide to PTSD and the women's guide. Uh, It's called Acknowledge and Heal. And by the time uh, this this airs in October 2022, our book will be out and available at all booksellers. It's so important to me to be able to have a candid, authentic. Conversation with those who are struggling, because the last thing that I needed when I was at my sickest was somebody just blowing smoke off my fourth point of contact. I needed help, and I needed to know. I mean, it was very basic, very linear. I wrote, I wrote the book, Amanda. That I wish I'd had. What I needed to know back then was, am I going crazy? I think that was my first question. Am I going absolutely batshit? You know, am I going crazy? What is this? So we, we, we talk a lot about what PTSD isn't. and We talk about what it is. We go line by line through the diagnostic uh, manual. And we do, uh, you know, a, a psychology to English translation about what this is so that we can identify, you know, and normalize a lot of these symptoms a big reason I was so vulnerable when I went in and talked with that colonel is I I just didn't know what was happening to me. I did not know. I knew that I was going crazy. And I knew that in my family line, there was a history of mental health issues. So my first thought was, oh, I am going crazy. I'm going to be institutionalized. Like, this is the end of the end. Let me push my husband away so he doesn't have to deal with an institutionalized wife. Let me push my friends away so that I don't infect them. That's Those are the things that I was telling myself was terrifying. But I was vulnerable because I didn't know what it was. And once I did know that what I was experiencing was pretty textbook PTSD, because PTSD is an unbelievably logical condition. It's not something wrong with you. It's something that happens to you. It's your body and brain's very natural, very natural reaction to a set of abnormal circumstances. You know, the military trains us how to fix fighter jets or, you know, refuel uh, tankers. It doesn't teach us how to be raped. It doesn't teach us how to hold our buddies, you know, head in our lap while they bleed out. It doesn't teach us how to deal with betrayal on an institutional level, you know, there, there are a lot of things that when it comes to PTSD, that they are, they're just very normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. And once we know what that is, we have to know, okay, now that I've identified the problem, I need to find a course of action. It's like, uh it's like those old training classes, you know, on ORM, but you know, I have to you know, what, what's my course of action? What can I do about this? And once I figured out how to treat my PTSD, then I needed to figure out, okay, how do I keep from relapsing? How do I keep from going back to a, because we think about relapse in terms of drugs or alcohol, but relapse just means going to an earlier place in time. We can relapse with depression or anxiety and certainly PTSD and any mental health disorder if we're not keeping, keeping a really, you know, good schedule of self-care and, taking good care of ourselves. So I had to learn, you know, what do I, now that I've, now that I've gotten this, you know, the tools to help me, what, how do I maintain this? You know, how do I, how do I make friends now that I'm not in the military, which is not easy, even for women, you know, this is just not easy. You know, there was a fear, you know, what other women are, are not going to, you know, what if somebody finds out I was an interrogator? People are going to hear that, you know, people aren't, you know, even now I mean, when I'm like, oh, I'm an Arabic speaker. I mean, the FBI laughed at me and sent me away. They're like, yeah, we got an institute, you know, go to the other side of town and maybe maybe go check in for a couple of days. You know, it. it there was a lot of fear there. You know, how do I talk to my family members about what I'm going through? How do I get buy-in? How do I talk to HR? You know, how how do I get time off? And so the Soldier's Guide to PTSD is really a, it's a soldier to soldier guide. It is, it is my book to the men and women out there who are struggling and maybe don't know how to help
0: themselves. Yeah, it sounds like such a great resource because when I went in to get help the first time, I was like, There's something wrong. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong. And I couldn't put it into words. And that was like, there was this underlying thing that I just knew there was something wrong, but I had no idea what it was. And I guess it had to like manifest in a more negative way. But I mean, I could have gotten help then because if we had figured out what it was, we could have dealt with it. But I also really resonated when you were talking about like how... I was afraid to like go back and get help because the number one thing that like stopped me from getting help was they said you were fine. So like to actually go and get help the second time and even the third time, because I did counseling with Cohen Veteran Network, I kept expecting them to be like, you're fine. Why are you here? And in the second, the last two situations, I was welcome with open arms and just, and given the support that I needed, but that lingering fear of like rejection really terrified me into taking that step to get the help that I needed. And so it sounds like the guide is such a great resource because it can help put like the psychology into layman's terms to make it easier for people to understand and to know how to get the help that they need.
1: Thank you. It You know, when it comes to military mental health, oh, this is going to sound crappy, but You know, we're already down this road, so put your seatbelt on, listeners. You know, I have an expectation that, you know, when I go to the VA that I'm going to be perhaps gaslighted. I can't tell you how many times I've been at the VA and, and somebody very lovely meeting meaning has come over to me and said oh are you waiting for your spouse and I'm like yeah not so much or you know showed up to an American Legion event or you know something like that and people have been like oh you know is your is your husband a veteran it's like oh my gosh you know this there I I have an expectation of of misogyny in some cases and and I'm I'm always delighted when it doesn't come to fruition and more and more and, and for your you know, for 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 those who are listening and thinking about joining the military, a lot has changed in 20 years, especially in terms of of gender and what is gender normative uh, within the military. A lot has changed. Uh, nowhere to go but up. But you know, I I I think it's really important, especially as women, uh, women of color, anybody doesn't identify as kind of part of the great norm, I think it's really important that we are able to to advocate for ourselves and to speak in a really salient and direct manner about our symptoms and about what's going on. So last year, we actually released the, the Soldiers Workbook to help folks and and your listeners. If they go to uh, www.thesoldiersblog.com, they can get The first couple chapters of the workbook for free, uh, that's a resource that we want to provide, man, everybody, so that folks can understand what PTSD isn't, what it is, and be able to speak in a very intelligent way. About their symptom, especially for example, if going for a compensation and pension exam, you know, we wanted to make sure that, that because those can be very re traumatizing if, if you're not ready for those. You know, let's say you put in for service connection, a connected disorder, you go to an examiner and then they ask you, you know, so tell me about the time that you were raped while you were in the military. You're like, whoa, like we just met five minutes ago, lady or sir, you know, and it's like, But and that's their job. And it can be jarring, absolutely jarring, because there is an expectation there. Um, And so we created the soldiers workbook to, to help folks get to a point where they are more comfortable talking about their symptoms, where they're able to explore what happened to them. It's ideally done, you know, in a group or whether you're individual therapist, but we have a lot of folks who've reached back and said, you know, I did this before my compensation and pension exam. It was really helpful. And just being able to speak the truth and to be able to speak factually and say, you know, these are my symptoms. Because, for example, uh, hypervigilance, we, we may not know that that's a symptom. But we, you know, we talk it out, having hallucinations. Yeah, this is kind of uncomfortable too. So let's go there. Let's go there, girl. So hallucinations, that's when we hear, see, smell, taste, feel something that we ostensibly know is not there. So I have never personally seen a case of PTSD without hallucinations. I say again, I have never seen a case of PTSD without hallucinations. And the reason is because it's a very natural reaction to a very abnormal set of circumstances. Our brain's job is to protect us. Number one, keep us alive. Keep us alive. So you stay alert, stay alive. So it makes perfect sense. It makes a lot of logical sense that... When I'm trying to relax, I will hear someone scream my name that I'm, you know, I'm in a stressful situation. All of a sudden I smell the the cologne of my attacker or I smell something burning when I know that there is nothing or I taste moon dust. You know, these are experiences that, that most of us have with PTSD. And um, but we also watch TV and we know that talking about hallucinating is maybe maybe a really great way to end up in a straitjacket and a padded cell. But you know, so we talk about that in in the soldiers workbook. You know, what You know, what is normal? What is normal? What, you know, what is not normal? You know, so it it is very normal to with PTSD to to have those hallucinations, to have nightmares, to have flashbacks, to to do something called dissociating. It's a 50 cent word uh, that means disconnecting. So we'll be talking with someone, we'll be driving, um, and all of a sudden we're just we're not there. It's almost as if we are watching ourselves from the outside. Uh, We'll be in a conversation. Uh, with our spouse or with our child. And then all of a sudden they ask us a question we realize, oh, I have not been here for like five minutes. Or we're driving and we miss our exit. And um, if you're out here in South Texas, like I am, you know, you, you there's a long way to go before the next turnaround. And that can be really frightening. And so it, I think it's important, especially as women, And and other groups, I think it's just important to be able to speak to our experience. I mean, I'm a professional counselor. You know, I'm halfway to a PhD. And I still have providers who, you know, medical providers, mental health providers who try to trick me up. And I'm like, I wrote the book. I literally wrote The Soldier's Guide to PTSD. You know, you pick the wrong person to gaslight. Today. And it's infuriating because if they would do that to me, they would do that to anyone. And that is not okay. I, I would just encourage uh, your listeners who are experiencing anything when it has to do with mental health is you know, figure it out. Figure out what is my diagnosis? What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, you know, for example, you know, as a metaphor, let's say that you are, you know. You fall off a ladder and you break your arm. Boom, it's off in some askew direction. And so you go to the emergency room because you fell and you don't know what's wrong. And then you get a first year resident there who has never actually seen a broken arm before. Imagine. And they say, you know what? Amanda, I'm not sure why your arm's like this and why it's in this weird angle, but what I do know is that whenever someone goes to the chiropractor, they tend to feel a lot better. They get a massage, they get the little electrodes. That's where we're going to send you. So they send you to, you know, to go ahead and get those, uh, get those treatments, and it might feel good in that moment. But guess what? You're gonna send, you're going to end up back at the hospital because your arm's broken. You didn't have the right diagnosis. It's the same with PTSD. There are very effective, very effective evidence-based treatments for PTSD. And they have been proven to to work within eight to 15 sessions. So if you're seeing a counselor every week, what the data tell us, the data are clear, is that it is very likely that your symptoms will reduce to a point where you're able to function again in just a couple months. It's miraculous. Uh, you know, researchers study evidence-based treatments, the the therapies, the uh, therapies for PTSD, much in the same way the FDA uh, looks at drugs. You know, so randomized trial, longitudinal studies over decades with, and when it comes to our evidence-based treatments for PTSD, literally thousands of service members and veterans over decades. Over the course of decades, you know, we have three evidence-based treatments that are approved by the Department of Veteran Affairs, the VA, which is a huge or, you know, really monstrous organization. So if they will even say, yeah, this is okay, then they're widely available. And that's prolonged exposure therapy. Cognitive processing therapy and EMDR, that's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Big, because if it's not an acronym, it's not real. It's a military show, girl. So, but we have those, those aren't the only evidence based treatments that work, but those are the three that the VA will sign off on and they are available at a military at all military treatment facilities or I should say they should be available at MTFs at at your VA and we can ask for them by name and it's really important because if we go to a therapist and we say and they say wow you've got PTSD and then we spend maybe three or six or nine months talking about our mommy issues Guess what? You're you're going to be back at the emergency room because your arm's still broken. Your arm is still broken. So it's very important that we use that we ask for by name evidence based treatments. If we know, you know, and it's again, it's very logical. You know, we've got if we have a diagnosis, then we've got courses of action.
0: That sounds like so many great resources, and I'll put a link to your blog in the show notes so that people can find it really easily and. I'm really glad that we got to do this conversation and to talk about not only your experience, but about the work that you're doing today and how you're helping veterans and service members. Is there anything from your time in the military that we didn't cover before I asked my last question? No, girl, you go for it. I have talked your ear off. I always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to the next generation of military women? So what advice would you give to someone who's considering joining the military?
1: Thank you for asking. And thank you for this time with, with you, Amanda, with your listeners. I would advise women to get a mentor. To get a mentor. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot about PTSD this past hour and about how having information is very helpful. Having the counsel of wise women is very powerful it's very very powerful. When I joined the military, I had I wanted to be one of the guys. I wanted to be one of the boys. And I didn't recognize early on until much later how powerful it is to be surrounded by other women who've had these experiences. I would recommend talking with other women, talking to to women who are still active duty, talking to women who are veterans, getting their advice on jobs, uh, different MOSs that would be good, a, a good fit for you. You know, it's having that individual mentorship, talking with someone, because, you know, not all jobs are the same. Not all services are the same. You know, I, I like I was listening to, uh to one of your well, this will be in October. So it's not the last podcast, but it's the last podcast that I listened to of yours is she had two moves in her entire 20 year career in the air force. And I thought, man, alive, you know, I've, I, you know, even in my short time and my husband's still active duty, we've done, oh my gosh, maybe 30 in less 30 moves in that time. You know, sometimes just from one building to another, it was just very frustrating, but you know, There are so many variables. I would encourage mentorship, asking questions, and making a decision from a point of strength and feeling very comfortable about what you're doing.
0: I also think that's great advice because I started a Women of the Military mentorship program, which I'll link to in the show notes, that it connects women who have served with women who are serving or want to serve so that you can ask people questions and build that relationship with someone who is a little bit further on in their journey. And then I also just finished a 10-week series focused on joining the military. So you have that as a resource that can help you know what questions to ask and get tips and advice. And then my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, just came out. And so that is meant to answer questions about joining, but also put you on the path to success in the military. So you have all those resources as well. So thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate you. Oh, time. I value you. Thank you so much. Oh, and join ROTC.
1: If you're in college, join ROTC and go be an officer. Don't enlist.
0: <laughs> the last little piece of advice. I like it. Thank you so much, Amanda,
1: for your time today. And... Yeah, you know, thank you to your listeners for for tuning in and I really look forward to connecting with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode and I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book a girl's guide to military service which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Noble you can go check it out it's a girl's guide to military service it's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career and if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor please check out the women of the military mentorship program which is also linked to in the show notes you can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.